Welcome to the Business of Agriculture, a podcast created to enlighten, inspire, and inform those who work in or depend on the world's most important endeavor, agriculture. Here's your host, Damian Mason. Greetings. Hey, it's Damian Mason. Thanks so much for being here today on the Business of Agriculture podcast, now available both as an audio wherever you get your podcast from, and on video. That's right, there's a playlist. Go to the Damian Mason YouTube channel. It's actually D. Mason Comedy, hearkening back to my former political comedian self. D. Mason Comedy is my YouTube channel. You can go there, subscribe, and there's a playlist that says Business of Agriculture, and another playlist that says the Do Business Better podcast. So thanks for being here today. Got a great show for you. You know, we're going to talk about the elephant in the room. I'm talking about coronavirus, COVID-19, the pandemic that has the world absolutely rattled. And we're going to talk about how it impacts the business of agriculture. With me is a great dude. His name is Eric Bream. He's with Bream Family Farms. He's a Californian. That's right. Some of you people that say, wait a minute, they farm out in California? Yes, it's the number one agricultural state in the union. Actually, it's about 50% to 100% bigger than Iowa, the number two ag state in the union in terms of agricultural revenue. He's a citrus farmer. He's a smart dude, even though he went to Fresno State. His name is Eric Bream, and here he is. Thanks for being on the show, Eric. Thank you, Damian. Glad to be here. Okay, so uh, first off, you've been on here once before. Uh, I said you're a citrus farmer. You are a smart dude. You're politically active. Uh, you were just in Washington, D.C. You also uh, are very active with a thing called My Job Depends on Agriculture. That's a Facebook page that is trying to put out information about the business of agriculture as it pertains more particularly to you in California. Did I miss anything? Oh, probably, but uh, we don't need to talk about me a whole lot. <laughs> I got my fingers in a lot of pies, but um, you know, I'm just glad we can talk about this coronavirus still and how it's affecting uh, both farms and consumers. Okay, so uh, here's the thing. The reason that you're on here is because you're knowledgeable. You were just in Washington, D.C., but big picture, you know, uh, folks like you and I get it, and I want to encourage anybody that listens to this podcast to share this episode with their non-agricultural friend. I really do, and it's because we're talking about something that's very fundamental. There are hoarding, consumers are hoarding toilet paper. Consumers are hoarding hand sanitizer. And there's an article in the Wall Street Journal from Friday about grocers fail to keep up with demand as coronavirus pandemic spreads. But the reality is my wife went to the grocery here in Phoenix, Arizona yesterday, and there was some level of craziness. She said, uh, you know, there's certain things that look like they were really picked over, almost depleted, but there were still groceries there. And this is something that we need to make sure our, our non-ag consumers understand. In third world countries and in communist countries and in socialist countries, this is normal that there's no food. And then there are panics and then there are people hoarding stuff. And this has never been the case in the United States because of what we do in agriculture. We don't take time off from what we do. We just keep putting groceries on the shelf. Your comments. <laughs> yeah, I just actually, uh, on My Job Depends on Ag, I just posted something right before we started doing this uh, podcast. And it's really, uh, you know, I find it interesting where, you know, on the farm, we deal with uncertainty every day. And we manage to navigate it without panicking, usually. Um, and even under those circumstances, we've created a situation where we've created virtual certainty for consumers most of the time. 
you know, they, they have every expectation. You walk into a grocery store that it's full of, you know, a hundred different kinds of fruits and vegetables and, and everything you can imagine, or that you hit a drive through and that, you know, you have a, a taco and a burrito in your hand in less than a minute, uh, those kind of situations. And then something like this comes up and suddenly the consumer is the one that's feeling uncertain and they don't know how to handle it. And, uh, it, you know, I'm, I'm kind of, when we look forward as, as this whole situation starts to unfold, I'm kind of hopeful that people become mindful of that a little bit and realize that, uh, you know, that it, our food system can be fragile depending on the amount of disruption. But for the most part in this situation, I would think that uh, this is really consumer driven. It's more, more of, uh, of an overreaction than it actually is to what supply and demand it would normally be in these situations. Yeah, it's a bit like we, we have adequate amounts of uh, wood being turned into pulp, being turned into toilet paper to cover our 330 million uh, citizens, but not when, <laughs> when demand spikes over a one-week period or a week and a half, whatever it's been, uh, where they bought a year's supply worth in one week when in you know, most of the time they wouldn't have that. From the disruption standpoint, another thing that we, again, want to remind our non-ag friends with, I'm seeing this all over the place. You know, I travel every week for a living. This is being altered. My business is being altered. Uh, conferences are being canceled. I go and speak at conferences and meetings. Uh, there's even speculation that we're going to actually do some travel bans, uh, even domestically here in the United States. Just read that article this morning. Uh, I'll be fine. You know, I'm, uh, I'm a, I never was a farm. I've never was a boy scout, but I've always been a farm boy and I've always been prepared. I didn't need the government to tell me to buy supplies to have a pantry. I had a pantry with canned goods in it and <laughs> I always have stuff. When I was growing up on the farm, we had a half a steer in the freezer all the time. So our only issue would have been if we lost electricity and most farms even have their own generator. So I've always been prepared. What I think is uh, really interesting though is we don't take 14 days off. We're not going to do this thing where like they are with schools, just, Hey, don't come back until April 12th or 13th, whatever that first Monday or second Monday is. It's like, no, we're, we're not taking a month off. We're not just going to work from home. There's a Tyson facility about an hour from my farm in Logansport, Indiana. Last I heard they kill like 2000 pigs a day or some ungodly number like that. How do you work from home at killing 2000 pigs a day? You know, <laughs> No, I don't think you do. <laughs> so anyway, we've got a tremendous situation in that we're keeping the shelves full. You see any, do you see any uh, problems? As far as what? Supply. Um, no, as a, as a general rule, um, you know, we, we catch a lot of flack in agriculture because a lot of times we oversupply markets and it, you know, it creates some difficulties, uh, and from a political standpoint, sometimes we, you know, we get in a little bit of trouble because, you know, hey, you're using all these resources and we're disking this food under or, you know, you, you just don't have anywhere to sell it. But then along comes something like this or in California, for example, because of our water situation, we get uh, we catch a lot of flack because we export a lot of these products out to other countries. And when I look at a situation like this. Um, we're probably not in a problem right now as far as supply, but if we were, you know, you extrapolate this out over the next couple of months, if things don't change, uh, we would get in a supply problem. And from my perspective, 
if that was the situation, we can we could just stop exporting to these other countries, bring it back, and you know help help some of that supply issue on this side of things. Um, I don't think that most people look at that uh, and and think that you know. But I mean, that's kind of the way I see it: is we should be in an oversupply situation, and we should feel blessed that we're able to produce enough to feed people in other countries, but also be able to bring it back to America if need be. Yeah, we know, uh, as I point out to my audiences, when you really think about it, so humans invented agriculture about 10,000 years ago. Um, Even after we invented agriculture, which beat the hell out of wearing a loincloth and trying to find some berries to eat, you know, (laughs) it it still was not abundance until about 100 years ago. So only one-tenth of one percent of the time that agriculture has actually existed, meaning 100 years of the 10,000 years, have we gone from scarcity to surplus. That really happened starting in the early 1900s, 1920s even. Uh, Refrigeration, infrastructure, hybridization of corn, a whole bunch of a confluence of things happened all at once. I'm sure on your side, probably it was the same thing with, uh, you know, better citrus, grafting or something like that. It was all this technology, innovation, and infrastructure happened and just boom. So we've been in a surplus situation with most food products uh, only here for the last 50 to 100 years. And you can say, yeah, that's usually bad. It certainly is bad for prices because then we've got, uh, you know, more supply and the demand stays stagnant. You bring down the price. But in a situation like this, again, there's nobody that's going to the grocery store saying, holy crap, I sure wish there was food here. <laughs> it's, just, uh, it's just not happening. No, I mean, I was at the grocery store yesterday, one of my local grocery stores, and I saw people panicking. And I kind of saw, I, I think what you were, you said your wife was describing, you know, there's parts of the store where, you know, if you've got something with some shelf life, people have picked through it. But yeah, I walked into the produce section and there was plenty of fruits and vegetables to, to buy. You know, I didn't feel like I walked into an empty grocery store at all. So, um, you know, and based on what I see from out here, I don't think we're getting close to a situation where it's just going to be completely wiped out other than whatever's going on with toilet paper and, and paper towels. (laughs) Yeah. And uh, uh, here's another one that uh, you and I both said before we went on air. Uh, You know, you look at this article in the Wall Street about uh, grocers failing to keep up demand. It's not really a failing. It's not a failing on their part. It's like, hell, this is a run like they've never seen. It reminds you of the runs on banks that happened in the Depression. Uh, You know, it's like they weren't sitting on that much cash. Of course, they can't withstand a run on the banks. They used to shut their doors and that caused all kinds of panic, you know, panic, bread, more panic. So these grocers, it's not like we're without food, but it's interesting, the shelf they show there is in a Massachusetts grocery store, and it's about meat. And anecdotally, a friend of mine came over here and drank some beers with me last night, and he said uh, he went to the store, because they go to the, they have normal jobs, they go to the store on weekends. And they went yesterday. <clears throat> and he said, you could get all the T-bones and pork chops and pork loins you wanted, but the cheap meat was sold out. And I'm like, well, that's interesting that uh, the cheap meat sold out. And then again, anecdotally, like you said, it's interesting, the consumers that only want Impossible Burgers or Beyond Burgers or GMO, when, when, when the panic is on, all of their little moral <laughs> convictions and all their, all their I want to save the earth and all their bullshit goes right out the window, doesn't it, Eric? Yeah, it seems to be that way. I saw, I saw a picture this morning of a shelf uh, in Oregon that, uh, you know, the, the beef was right next to this plant-based 
meat product and the beef was just completely obliterated. There's nothing on the shelf and it looked like the other stuff. It hadn't even been touched. <laughs> and so, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I mean, essentially, I think if you look at it, if you're hungry, food is food and you know, or if you need it, food is food, organic and, and conventional and GMO and non-GMO and all of these labels just get completely thrown out the window because you need to eat, you know, and, I think, uh, you know, you, you mentioned for the last 50 to 100 years, we come up with into this situation where we of abundance rather than scarcity. And that is essentially what creates all of that, um, because we have free time on our hands to think about that kind of thing. And we have, you know, choices to make, you know, but when hunger, if you were actually hungry, I, you wouldn't care. None of that matters. You know, and I, I look back, I'm kind of a bit of a history buff. And I look back over the last two generations and we haven't seen adversity in so many ways, um, including, including mine, your generation, you know, they, I mean, they, we just haven't seen it the way previous generations have. And we've become complacent about things like food and where it comes from and uh, don't really understand how that can impact us. So I look at this situation with a with a ray of hope that people can start to see how important this is and how taking for granted it, we really take it. Yeah, actually, uh, you and I are going to do our part. Of course, we're going we're asking everybody to take this episode and share it with your friends. And I just you know again going and looking at some realities of numbers. Uh, we got 330 million people in this country. You can say, oh well, some people are hungry, and then it's always overplayed. Generally, when when stuff is always it's the old political thing of exploiting a crisis for your own political gain and power. When you hear about how bad things are and how they're starving people, that's actually a lot of misinformation. We got about 43 million people that are on food stamps. About 13% of our population is on uh, SNAP, food stamps, free lunch, free breakfast. All these schools are canceling. And one of my first thoughts was I don't have children. So it's not like my kids go to school. So that wasn't the issue, but I know that there's a significant number of children that uh, get more of their nutrition through school lunch school breakfast and i'm like well here's the thing we're going to not make them go to school on the risk that they're going to catch the covid19 virus but i bet you they're going to be opening up places where all these kids can go and eat and sure enough depending on the kind of district you're in if you're in a more affluent you know here in my winter house in paradise valley arizona there's not as many kids that depend on school lunches whereas back in huntington indiana where my farm is where i live half the year uh, you know it's like 70 percent of the students are on free or reduced lunches um so that's important that we that we do all that from an agricultural standpoint that's still not going to be disrupted i mean even if the schools are not in they're still going to be getting fed yeah, I, I mean, I just don't see a huge amount of disruption. Like you were saying, we don't take 14 days off at the farm, you know, and when you look at it, if you look at what I do, you know, we're getting right into springtime now, which is where we see a lot of pest pressure and where we do a lot of our actual farming. And, you know, the bugs aren't going to take 14 days off and, you know, and the trees aren't going to take 14 days off. So we don't have that choice either. And I think if you look at agriculture across the board, that's what you're going to find. You're still going to find supply that's going to come into the system. Okay, so dig this. And I, I was active on this very topic about a week and a half ago because I have been accused of underplaying the significance or the direness of the COVID-19 coronavirus. And I said, no, I just have seen this. I've seen this movie before. 
I saw it after 9-11. Yeah, 3,000 people got killed on 9-11 in America. I, that's terrible. I mean, my heart goes out to any of those people and those families. But I also saw the overreaction, uh, you know, where then nobody got on airplanes. And then, again, conferences and meetings canceled. And business just went to hell because of the human emotion. And I'm seeing the same thing with the coronavirus thing. So at the risk of sounding like I'm not taking it seriously, uh, I said, okay, let me give you another tip here, another pointer, another story that you haven't heard. And if you don't believe this, look it up. Go to the Wall Street Journal website and type in Locusts Africa. It was about 10 to 14 days ago, Eric, that uh, there are swarms of locusts in East Central Africa that are is the size of Manhattan. So imagine a swarm of locusts the size of, an, of, of, of New York City coming across your fields. Well, it just it destroys the entire uh, agricultural crop. So there is an estimate that, and of course, these are third world countries. Uh, they, they don't have adequate air supply. So they're like, okay, uh, the one, the one uh, group, they formed a group between six countries there to uh, be ready to spray. Well, they've got like four airplanes that are from the 1960s. So it's like, you might as well be after the fly swatter. Uh, <clears throat> and then, of course, all the do-gooders that think we shouldn't be spraying our uh, crops with herbicide and insecticide and fungicide, right now they need insecticide really bad in East Africa. Well, dig this. One estimate said that they might be 20 to 30 million people starve because of all the food supply being decimated in, this, <clears throat> in these African countries. We have not heard one iota because a Columbia University epidemiologist that was on this task force about coronavirus says high variable, high, high variable projection he came up with, we could lose as many as 10 million people in the world. Uh, to coronavirus. Right now, we're around 6,000. <laughs> 7.6 billion people were around 6,000 that have died of coronavirus. This guy says it could be as many as 10 million. I'm like, well, they got a long way to go to go from 6,000 mm -hmm. to 10 million. But even if it were high variable, 10 million, high, high variable, three times that are going to die in Africa because of the locusts and because they just don't have the access to uh, airplanes and spray equipment and herbicide, and I'm, I'm sorry, insecticide. Haven't heard one bit about that, have we? <laughs> no, I mean, I've read it. I've seen a couple of those articles posted on our uh, Facebook page and I, I've read them. I was just a little curious about how accurate they were actually. I went, you know, it's hard to say sometimes in the world of uh, misinformation. Um, but, but I agree with your assessment of it, even after, you know, I, even after I talked to last week, I talked to several, you know, high level government career employees who are dealing with this on a real time basis. Um, not why I was there, but obviously this came up in the conversation and I got some insight from them. Um, it's, I don't see this after, especially after those conversations. Yes, this is a real, uh, Oh, I don't want to call it a fear. It's not a real fear, but it's a it's a it's a real challenge that that's coming our way. But is it is it really what it's made out to be in the media? Is it made? Is it what people are making it out to be in Costco? I you know, and I have a I have a hard time believing that's what it is. You know, this is really just a situation where uh, it needs to be managed and uh, slowed down as much as possible, and just to mitigate the risk as much as he can. But this isn't, you know, it, it's a meteor is not hitting the earth. We're not all going to die tomorrow. So, and no, you're I still going to have food in the grocery store. That's the important part. And, uh, you know, like I said, the, if you go to Dodge City, Kansas, uh, where they're killing steers every day, there's still going to be beef. Right now, there's a little short-term uh, 
shortage. And it's not because we're not still slaughtering the steers. It's because the average consumer that would go and buy a pound of burger uh, went and bought 17 pounds of burger. So it just, just changed the whole dynamic. Uh, by the way, and again, people have accused me of not taking this seriously enough or making, I'm not making a joke about it. I'm just pointing out that the risk factor, you know, Italy's at a 7% mortality rate on this article I just read yesterday. Italy's at 7% mortality rate, which is like double what it has been everywhere else. And then what, what go deeper into the numbers. Italy is also the second oldest country on earth in terms of the age of their population. Japan is the oldest country on earth. You know, we've got a lot of very old Japanese people, which is why their population is starting to decline because the old people are dying and they're not having a bunch of babies. Italy is the second oldest country. So that would explain it. Um, the risk factor tends to be uh, if you're in your 70s and 80s. Yeah. Uh, so the thing is, people that are in their 70s and 80s are closer to dying, period. Whether they were to get uh, the coronavirus or choke on a chicken bone or whatever, let's just face it, that's where deaths happen. You know, your average 18-year-old that's just uh, walking around isn't as likely to, to die or something like that. So it's not going to be a food issue. That's also probably going to be overblown. Give me your assessment out there in California where people like to be more flaky anyhow. Uh, assessment as far as what? Uh, what you actually see happening and time frame? Uh, you know, well, I just got back into California <laughs> a couple of days ago, but I mean, like I said, I was at the grocery store yesterday and even in rural parts of California, I see people overreacting, uh, at least from my standpoint, um, you know, uh, hoarding, I, I don't know if you'd want to call it that, you know, but when, when the person in front of you has you know, five cases of water and that was the last of them, you know, and they're going out the door. It just makes you kind of wonder, um, you know, I, again, I go back to my hope in California because we kind of are that flaky uh, population that you're talking about. Um, my hope is, is that it, it, some of this just starts to put a light bulb over some, over some people's head and say, wow, you know, I didn't realize how fragile this whole system could be if, if things really, you know, this isn't the situation to show them that, but it, there's just enough of a, a disruption in it that it might, it might actually cause them to step back and think about, uh, you know, why we do the things we do in agriculture and why, you know, and how their food supply actually works. A friend of mine, Dennis Haugen, has been on this podcast a couple of times. He's a grain, he's a grain, uh, he trades in some grain, he salvages grain on side business, and he also is a grain farmer, and he has a proprietary uh, uh, radish uh, product that he sells for uh, cover cropping. So he keeps up quite a bit uh, with world markets. And he told me that I think the number is that uh, while we are in a surplus situation, have been oversupplied for, almost, like I said, most of your and I life, you know, since the 60s for sure when you and I were born, um, <clears throat> or 70s, I guess, for you, um, that we are at about 51 days of supply or something like that. It's under two months worth of oversupply, meaning if you just stopped producing, uh, yeah, we have surpluses, but it's like 51 days worth or something like that. That puts it in perspective that, you know, we're less than two months away from the, bare, the, from the barren shelves that we're talking about if we stop producing. That's why we don't take two weeks off uh, in what we do out here. Um, on the citrus, which is what your business is, how oversupplied are we? Well, it depends. There's lots of different varieties of citrus out there, so it depends on which one you're growing. I grow eight different varieties, and um, almost all of them are in overproduction from maybe 15% to upwards of 30%. 
kind of depending on which one you're looking at in real time today, but virtually all of them are in overproduction. And from that standpoint, and from a fresh fruit standpoint, um, we're supplying, again, depending on the variety, we're supplying anywhere from 80% to upwards of close to 100% of those varieties across the U.S. And every single one of them is, is in overproduction, even with all of the challenges that are going on in Florida related to uh, a thing called HLV disease, citrus greening. Um, that industry has been devastated, but we were kind of competing in two different markets because in California, it's so expensive to farm that we are, when, if I have any piece of fruit that goes to a juice plant and goes in a juice bottle, that's a, that's a big loser for me in Florida for a lot of years. That's what they were growing for was to, yeah, put in your, your stuff is so expensive that if it goes to juice, you just lost money. Your stuff <laughs> needs to go to a fresh consumption market, right? Yeah, exactly. And, you know, that's really just economics because, uh, oh God, my trade association last year did a, um, a study about our costs, our regulatory costs. So uh, my regulatory costs per acre are over $700 per year that I'm paying out in regulatory fees and programs and, and all of that, not even considering my time and everything else that it takes to comply with all of that. You know, you talk to farmers in other areas, you know, that kind of blows their mind. You said $700 per acre that you, uh, you spend on compliance. Yes. Yeah. That's a crazy number. Now that's where this whole thing, I guess that's where I wanted to go toward the end of this uh, episode. We both can go on and on about how good of a job agriculture does and pat ourselves on the back that we're keeping the grocery stores uh, stocked and we're not taking time off, et cetera, et cetera. But there are real risks and there are real uh, threats, I think, to our food. And it has nothing to do with coronavirus. It has to do with regulation and uh, costs uh, when when everybody clamors for, we need to do this, pass more laws, and then all of a sudden Eric Green just is saddled with $700 per acre of compliance cost. Uh, that's state and federal regulation. So so my point is, what are other threats? That one's the big one. You talked about water. Uh, you got the most productive agricultural state in the union, and they're going to, they're going to, they're going to, they're going to dehydrate you. Yeah, so what we're facing now is uh, a lot of different factors that are coming together. Uh, that, but the biggest one we're we're challenged with is is water, and based on some laws and regulations that have come through in the last five to six years, uh, there's a there's a high probability that we're going to lose a million over a million. Eh, it's hard to say somewhere between seven hundred and fifty thousand and maybe one point two million acres of farmland in the in central and southern parts of California are going to be permanently fallow because without the water to grow what we're growing on them that we won't be able to ever bring them back really uh, and most of that is being done for environmental concerns um, but you know again I mean if you kind of go back and you look you know I was talking about citrus you know there's parts of citrus where maybe we're 15 percent in overproduction right well we're going to take far more than 15 percent out if that number comes to fruition and so what that does is it you know not only affects supply it's going to affect price eventually 
because yeah, and you know that's always the wrong argument that I tell my ag people. Don't keep telling the consumer oh, it's going to cost you more because we've proven in America the consumer generally is not motivated by price because they spend. That's why they go to Trader Joe's and Whole Foods. They want to spend more for a uh, value-added product. I think the argument isn't price. I do think it's going to be about access. I really think that if we just continue, to, or as I point out, financial security. If well, I, I think that I think that's a fair that's a fair way to look at it um, because. Yeah, I mean, obviously that some capitalist somewhere in the world is going to try and fill that void and, pro and they can probably do it for less than we can. Um, but long term, when you look at that, uh, what does that look like from a food security standpoint? Uh, you know, if we wind up in these situations where, uh, you know, let's say, for instance, the, the ports, if the government comes out tomorrow and says, hey, we're just going to close the ports. What does that do to your food supply? And, and is it really the wisest thing in the world to, to take out a million acres of this stuff that's that's growing food that that can feed us in those situations? Or do we turn around and say, well, now we've got to strap up a bunch of uh, young kids in uniforms and send them across the world to, you know, to make sure that we get enough food. Yeah, it's the food security. I think the food security issue, and when we, we've encouraged our ag friends to share this episode because, Eric, I think that that's really what this, uh, when times of crisis uh, come about like this, it makes me realize that we've got an opportunity, as you said, to tell our consumers, hey, this is why you don't need to hamstring us. This is why you don't need to uh, to to put these burdens on us. Because by God, when when the chips are down, we're still we're still feeding you, and uh, you don't want to lose that autonomy and that independence, and then be dependent. Right now, if we were dependent on, imagine if we were dependent on China or Brazil, which is beholden to China. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think we see that somewhat more acutely here in California because that's the battle that we're always fighting. I mean, I can, uh, I've been in situations with the government and NGOs and, and people like that. You know, they just have this feeling that we shouldn't be here, period. Not only that we take a million acres out. I mean, they just, from their perspective, there's people out there who think we just shouldn't be doing what we're doing. And, uh, you know, from a food perspective, we, you know, depending on what it is that you're talking about, if, let's use lettuce as an example, you know, if anyone across the country who's eating a salad, there's, there's about a 99 in 10 chance that that lettuce came from California. Right. And across the whole U.S., right? right? And then on the other side of this, you've got people in areas of great influence saying, you shouldn't be there. You shouldn't be doing that there because it's not natural. You know, all the while, they're in a 50-story in a building uh, you know, in a place that's... Yeah, and they just drove their Toyota Prius there and they took the elevator and they're on their computer and they're connected to the internet and they're they're downloading music files on their phone and they're saying, what you're doing is not natural. Right. <laughs> well, right. no, nothing I just described is natural. Uh, right. That's one of my big points always is that, yes. Uh, I think that's a real opportunity for us to make sure that we, and I'm out here doing it, and, you know, we in agriculture, as I always say, talk to ourselves too much, Eric. Um, you and I don't need to keep telling each other that we know what we're doing. We got to make sure that we tell our consumers. And again, we don't need you to thank a farmer. I get so tired of that. Thank a farmer. No, no, no. It's our business. You know, I don't need, we don't need thanked. What we need is to not be regulated out of business. Because again, right now is a great example for us to illustrate to the consumer. You never went without your groceries. Yeah. And uh, no matter what, you would maybe without the toilet paper, that's a different deal. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think I, we missed the mark on messaging quite a bit. I, I, I really do. You know, the, this idea of thank a farmer, I don't need thanks, really. You know, what I, what I actually do need is your support in order to, you, you know, keep some of these other monkeys off of my back. And I get frustrated, especially here in California, where every year when the, you know, when the uh, counties come out with their financial numbers for agriculture, you know, that's on the front page of every newspaper here. And I get frustrated to see it because it gives these people that are reading that some a false sense yeah. of how, you know, literally how much money comes back to the farm for one thing. But, you know, that, that we're not, especially here in parts of California, this is not a, a healthy, vibrant industry the way it should be. Mm-hmm. And I think when we message towards people with money, number one, they don't care. And, but it also gives them a false sense of what's go- actually going on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think we certainly have a chance to message on this one. And uh, I know I've said it a couple times already, but I'm going to say it again. Our message on this one is, yeah, don't you don't keep caring about thanking us and all that. You know what the real thing is? Just use this as a learning moment. Uh, you know, in times of crisis, we weren't dependent on Brazil. In times of crisis, we weren't dependent on China and we still made sure everybody got fed. We didn't take the time off. So you know what? We won't take the time off. We don't need, we don't need your thanks. That's fine. You know what we really need? Just continue to give us access to do what we do without regulating the hell out of us, and, uh, and we'll produce. And you know, the market obviously has proven that. Like you said, uh, the Impossible Burgers were on the shelf, but the market already proved people want burger. <laughs> they want real, they want real yeah. food. Yeah. Well, my, my biggest hope is that maybe maybe even one or two people might go down to a county fair at some point and buy a hog or a steer from one of these kids and, and slap it in a freezer because they remember, you know, the coronavirus scare of 2020. <laughs> yeah, you know, dead on. Again, uh, uh, when my mother died uh, three years ago, we still had cherries at the bottom of the deep freeze from 1968. The cherries were older than me by a year <laughs> because she, she was always the belief, by God, there's going to be canned goods. And jarred uh, garden produce out in the, down the basement. There's going to be a half a hog and a half a steer in the freezer. And so uh, dead on. Hey, his name's Eric Bream. He's very active on My Job Depends on Agriculture. If you are on Facebook, I encourage you to like that page. My Job Depends on Agriculture. You'll see his stuff there along with his uh, cohort, Steve and Eric. Uh, good dudes. Um, uh, follow uh, him and keep up with him. And, uh, and if they need to get a hold of you, how do they find you? Uh, that's the that's the easiest way is to get on uh, our group page on my job depends on ag and uh, just take a look at what we're doing that's the easiest way and he's got a movie coming out real quick plug for your i'm sorry your tv show give me a quick plug yeah so we just created a television show last year that's called american grown my job depends on ag it's an offshoot of what we're doing on facebook and the producer just takes issues that we're bringing up on facebook makes a half hour tv show out of them and we put it on our local PBS affiliate uh, here in California. And we are about 98% sure that we're going to push season two out into onto the national platform for PBS. So we're That's looking great. for that. That's fantastic. Thanks for being here, Eric Bream. Thank you, Damien. Enjoy Until it. next time, it's the business of agriculture. If you've enjoyed this episode of the business of agriculture, please share it with your network. Be sure to connect with Damien on LinkedIn, like his Facebook fan page, and follow him on Instagram and Twitter. For speaking inquiries or to purchase Damien's books, 
food fear, or do business better, go to DamianMason.com.